My name is John Pauley. Uh, I'm uh, an academic administrator. So you can feel sorry for me, I guess. Um, I was having a conversation with some friends of mine the other day about, uh, about movies that depict academic administrators. And the only one that came to mind was National Lampoon's Animal House. You remember Dean Warmer. Well, I, I, I'm not anything like that, I, just so that you know. I'm, I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Eastern University. Um, I am uh, the Vice Provost for Academic Operations. Um, a- academe is actually my second life. Uh, I went to seminary. I was ordained and pastored a church in Arizona for a couple of years before I went back to pursue my uh, Ph.D., I'm glad to be here this morning, and uh, this past uh, Thursday, um, not that we as Christians need a a prompt to pause and to worship and to thank God, but I hope that you had some time to pause uh, individually and with your family and with friends to say thanks. And and I got to tell you, one of the things that I am genuinely thankful for is this church. Um, um, I am so thankful for uh, the people that I have met here, for Paul, for uh, the leadership team, uh, for the spirit in this place. Um, I am thankful uh, for the problems that we have, the problems that Paul talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I am thankful for those. God is at work in our midst and um, I am uh, rejoicing in the opportunity to be here. I hope that you're thankful uh, that you are a part of this fellowship. I want to begin this morning, I'm going to put on my best stained glass voice. I, I am not trained in that tradition. I was ordained in a Baptist church, so uh, uh, I'll do my best. But uh, I want to begin this morning by reading for us the Venite Exultimus. You'll see it here on the screen. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the corners of the earth and the strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it. And his hands prepared the dry land. O come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are his people. He is our shepherd, and we are his flock. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now, for some of us, this is familiar language. Depending on the church tradition that you were raised in, uh, this is a, a standard call to worship. Perhaps you've sung these words or recited them as part of a liturgy in, in, in a church that you were a part of. And perhaps you're thinking uh, that this might be a very fitting text for us to consider this morning. After all, Thursday was Thanksgiving, and it would be more than appropriate for us to stop for a few moments and reflect on all that God has given us and has done for us. In the words of the old hymn, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. 
But there's something quite interesting about this hymn or spoken call to worship. It starts out with the words of Psalm 95 and follows that ancient hymn up through the first half of verse 7. And then it abandons the psalm mid-verse. Some versions, like the one I just read, insert the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Others insert Psalm 96, verses 9 to 10. And let's skip to the next slide. And the next one. So here, you see, O worship the Lord with the beauty of, in the beauty of holiness... Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So in one version, we have the Gloria Patri tacked on to the, after Psalm 95, 7a. And then in this one, we have Psalm 96, 9 to 10 tacked on to the end of Psalm 7a. Why would the author uh, or authors of these worship aids do this? Well, it depends on who you ask, and there are several different explanations, uh, some more charitable than others. And some scholars have even suggested that what we currently have in our Bible as Psalm 95 was originally two poems or songs that were brought together. The first portion was a celebratory song of praise to Yahweh, the King of all creation. It was a genuine call to worship the great king above all gods. The second portion was a stern sermon, challenging the people to stop grumbling against God and warning them about the consequences of rebellion against Yahweh. We have a high-flying, toe-tapping, hand-clapping, rip-roaring worship song replete with guitar riffs, a nice backbeat, and a drummer giving it all he's got paired with a dour prophetic oracle delivered by a grumpy old man pointing his finger while looking over his horn-rimmed glasses. From the top of feel-good mountain to the valley of gloom in a dash, we go from Patty Positive to Debbie Downer in a nanosecond. Well, I don't believe that what we have currently in our Bibles is Psalm 95 is someone's attempt to stitch together two songs that really don't belong together. Rather... When we look at this psalm closely, we will find a most eloquent hymn that fully captures what it really means to worship God and live a life of thanksgiving. So, let's read the entirety of Psalm 95, and this is from the New International Version. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care." Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. 
So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Psalm 95. What I think we see or read here is a processional song. A processional song. So let's begin and let's walk together with the ancient Israelites as they began their ascent to the temple and into its inner courts. The song begins with a summons, an invitation to worship. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. I did the best I could. Notice the verbs. Sing, shout aloud, come before Him, extol with music and song. Imagine the bustling streets of Jerusalem, all sorts of activity, people coming and going, and then someone stops, steps up, and probably does shout these words, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. We are being summoned to leave what we are doing and to come before God, to leave the streets, to leave behind whatever else it is that we are doing, and to go into God. So, all of a sudden, a crowd forms and begins to sing and shout praises to Yahweh. The bedlam of the busy street now has competition. A group of worshipers is forming, being led by someone who shouts, Come, let's shout praises to God. Raise the roof for the rock who saved us. Let's march into His presence singing praises, lifting the rafters with our hymns. This is the rendering of Eugene Peterson in the message. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in a pretty buttoned-down church. We didn't do much shouting, and we sure weren't much for raising the roof or lifting the rafters. We did somber and stately pretty well. We could sing Amazing Grace with a certain solemn cadence. But I think the psalmist is going for the techno version. Now, do any of you know what the techno version of Amazing Grace sounds like? Anybody? All right. Go on YouTube, look it up. So you've seen these house uh, decorations now. People have just taken this to an obscene level where they have um, uh, all kinds of lights on their houses and they have set up by computer and and with songs. Well, there's one. It's it's this techno version of Amazing Grace. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, 80s disco, right? So, uh, all right. So there you go. Look it up and then you'll fully appreciate the reference. The street scene was not so much an elegant promenade, but a bit more like Justin Timberlake and Can't Stop the Feeling. And as the song goes, begins to swell, we hear the leader offer the reasons why we should join in Yahweh's dance line. For Yahweh is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Our ancient Israelite friends lived in a very pluralistic society. There were all sorts of gods. The children of Israel had lived in Egypt, and the Egyptians had quite a few gods. Let's take a look at that first slide. Every one of these, and this is from a a, a wall painting, every one of those is a god. Let's look at the next. This is the this is Nut and Shu and Geb, Egyptian gods. Nut was the mother of Osiris, Isis, Seth, and I can't even pronounce the last one's name. 
Nude is usually shown in human form, her elongated body symbolizing the sky, so you can see that's Newt. Each limb represents a cardinal point as her body stretches over the earth. The Egyptians taught that Newt swallowed the setting sun, which was Ra, each evening and gave birth to him each morning. Shu is holding Newt up. He was the husband of Tefnut and the father of Newt and Geb. Shu was the god of the air and sunlight, or more precisely, dry air, and his wife represented moisture. He was normally depicted as a man wearing a headdress in the form of a plume, and you can see that in this, in this picture. Geb, the one laying on the ground, was the father of Osiris, and, was, and he was without a cult. He, as an earth god, he is associated with fertility, and it was believed that earthquakes were the laughter of Geb. We have one more slide. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know how Captain America and Thor and Iron Man... Oh, yeah, all right, sorry. Let's move on to the, the Canaanite gods. There were, there were two that were prominent. Next slide. We had Baal. And by the way, many times when you hear the word or read the word Lord in the Old Testament, it is a translation of Baal. But the Canaanites believed that Baal was the god of the weather and storms. He was often tied with the seasonal cycle of crops. Asherah was known as the mother of gods and was often thought of as the goddess of fertility. But the worship leader is extolling Yahweh. And I use Yahweh intentionally there. We often translate it God because we think, but in, in that context, the worship leader is extolling Yahweh as the great king above, God, above all gods. He and he alone is worthy of worship. Why? Well, According to the psalm, there is a vertical dimension to Yahweh's sovereignty. From the lowest of valleys, the deepest of depths, to the highest of mountains, Yahweh created it all, and He owns it all. And there is the horizontal dimension to Yahweh's reign. From the waters of the seas to the dry land, Yahweh is God. There is no place where He is not God. In the cultural context of this psalm, the leader is asserting that Yahweh is not some tribal God. He is not bound to any region or tribe. He is not the God of the sun or moon. He is not the God of the ocean or the God of the mountains. He is not the God of rain or the storm. He is not the God of fertility. No, He is the God of all those things and more. Yahweh is the creator of all things. He made the sea and the dry lands. He scooped out the valleys and he formed the mountains. And Yahweh owns all things. He owns the lakes, the rivers, the oceans. He owns the soaring mountain peaks and the deepest canyons. He is the great king above all gods. Let's march forward. Let's leave the streets and ordinary things behind. Let's go together. And let's worship this Yahweh, the great king. So the procession continues. We have moved from the approach to the temple to the inner areas of the sanctuary, perhaps an inner court. And now we hear a third exhortation to worship in verse 6. But we have moved into the temple. We are no longer shouting and singing. We have come to a place to stop, to bow down, and to kneel. Come, 
Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. And the reason we are offered, the God who is sovereign over all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the psalmist says, is our maker. And Yahweh, who rules over all peoples, is our God. And the psalmist writes, we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Yahweh has a special covenant relationship with Israel. He is their shepherd. They are his sheep. Yahweh created the world, and he created his people. Creation and recreation. This language, we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care, points back to a signal moment in the life of Israel. In Psalm 77, we read these words. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here the psalmist writes of God's deliverance of his people through the Red Sea. We have language of terrible power and awesome might juxtaposed with gentleness. The terrifying power of Yahweh unleashed on the waters and the land, and the tender care of a shepherd. For it was through this awesome display of power that Yahweh demonstrated his deliverance. Of his people. And again in the next psalm, Psalm 78, which is quite a long psalm, the psalmist recounts over and over again God's deliverance. After recounting Yahweh's deliverance from Pharaoh, culminating in the final plagues, the psalmist writes this He prepared a path for his anger, he did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague. He struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of manhood in the tents of Ham. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely, so they were unafraid, but the sea engulfed their enemies. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. These words drew the Israelites back to the time when God made or created them as a people. God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. He called them out of Egypt, and he summoned them to Sinai, where he made covenant with them. So now perhaps we could add another layer to the declarations in verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Yes, Yahweh created the highest of heights and carved out the deepest of depths, but in a sense, he created valleys and mountains of water in delivering his people from Pharaoh's armies. 
The sea that had been that he had made parted and became dry land, so that his flock could walk through safely to the other side. And the great king above all gods not only demonstrated his power over all creation, but over the gods of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God's creation bent to his powerful will as he brought forth his flock and created his people. Some scholars have divided the psalm, this psalm into three parts. Verses 1 to 5, a hymn of praise to the God who created the heavens and the earth. Verses 6 through 7a, a hymn to the God who created his people. And verses 7b to 11, a stern warning to God's flock. But I'd like to argue that this psalm is a song of procession. Both literally, the people sang this song as they walked into God's temple from outside. And figuratively, the ideas the psalmist presents leads us from a grand sweeping view of the transcendent God, creator of all things, to a God who leads us like a shepherd, who is our God. And I'd like to argue that this psalm is about worship from beginning to end, not just 1 through 7a, but from beginning to end. From loud and boisterous praise to Yahweh, the Creator, to bowing down and kneeling before our shepherd, our maker. And that brings us to the last part of verse 7. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Or, as Eugene Peterson renders it, drop everything and listen. Listen as he speaks. Today, if only you would hear his voice. The worshipers have come into the temple. They have knelt before Yahweh. They have bowed down before him. And now that the procession has come to a stop, and the people have assumed a reverential posture before Yahweh, the leader, perhaps a priest, stands in the midst and calls the people again to worship, this time with a call to listen. In the earlier stanzas of the psalm, the people were called to use their mouths in singing and shouting, their feet in coming into the temple, and their backs, legs, and knees in bowing down and kneeling. And now, they are invited to open their ears to hear the voice of Yahweh. Today, if only you would hear His voice. These words of the worship leader may well have evoked some very famous and foundational words for these Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Shema Israel. These words of Moses followed this admonition. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. When Moses or this Psalm 95 worship leader invited their hearers to listen, it was more than just an invitation to pay attention to some words. It was a call to obedience. Moses said, be careful to obey. And the leader... Speaking for Yahweh in Psalm 95 offers a warning. Do not harden your hearts 
as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. The worship leader reminds those gathered of a very interesting and perplexing event in Israel's history. After Yahweh had shown his power by bringing the plagues on on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, after he had delivered them from Pharaoh and his armies by bringing them through the Red Sea, we read this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you at the rock, by the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. Masa and Meribah mean quarreling and testing. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Before we get to the moral of the story, notice God's sense of humor. He tells Moses to take the same staff, the same staff that he used to strike the Nile River, evoking God's mighty power demonstrated through the plagues in Egypt to take that staff and strike a rock and that water would gush out uh, to provide drink for them and their livestock. God, through the worship leader, says, they tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. And perhaps we could put a fine point on this by repeating the question, found in Exodus 17, 7. Is the Lord among us or not? The worship leader, speaking for God, warns the gathered worshipers not to harden their hearts, not to test God, not to allow their hearts to go astray, not to rebel against God or quarrel with Him as their ancestors had done. And the warning is for today. Today. The the, the today of when this psalm was spoken. Today. November the 26th, 2017. Our ancestors are dead and buried. What they did and what they said can be instructive for us. Let us, today, not rebel against God, Let us today not quarrel with God. Let us today not question whether God is in our midst. 
today if you would hear his voice. So we started out this morning by hearing a call to worship. And we saw that some folks did not feel that the last portion of this psalm was appropriate for a worship setting. But I think this morning, as we have followed through this procession song, that worship progresses from jubilant acclamation of God's greatness and sovereignty over all creation to an acknowledgement that the great creator is the same one who created us, his people, and leads us as our shepherd. We have gone from boisterous singing and shouting to bowing down and kneeling before the Lord our Maker. We have moved from one pole of worship, jubilation, to the other pole of worship, submission and obedience. I lead a men's small group, and we are currently reading and discussing John Ortberg's book, God is Closer Than You Think. This past Tuesday night, we discussed chapter 4, the greatest moment of your life. And in that chapter, Ortberg talks about when you learned, when you, when you took your first breath, that was a great moment. When you learned how to walk, that was probably a great moment for you, maybe not so much for your parents. When you learned how to talk, again, probably a great moment for you, not so great for other people around you. When you, got, when you kissed for the first time, and so forth and so on. A number of firsts. Those have to be great moments. But Artberg argues that this moment, this one, right here, is that greatest moment. The past is past. It's not a good idea to live there, either regretting it or cherishing it. The future may never come. Not a good idea to waste this moment worrying about what might happen or waiting for tomorrow. Today, this is it. The greatest moment of your life. In the chapter, Ortberg has a section entitled, The Greatest Danger. And in that section, he recounts the moment... When Moses went to Pharaoh after the second of the ten plagues. Second of the ten plagues was the plague of the frogs. Now this plague recorded in Exodus 8 was pretty nasty, in my opinion. You know, I suppose the river Nile turning to blood was pretty bad too. But frogs everywhere, okay. And they were everywhere. They came out of the Nile. They swarmed even into Pharaoh's palace, into his kitchen, his ovens, and the bowls where the bread were needed. And to make matters worse, Pharaoh's court magicians decided to match Moses and Aaron frog for frog. Talk about a plague. This frog epidemic really got to Pharaoh. And so he summoned Moses and Aaron to the palace. And this is what Pharaoh said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Remember, Moses and Aaron had said to, gone to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. Let us go to worship our God. And 
And the Pharaoh was not too excited about that because the labor market would have suffered tremendously if he did that. Moses said, and somewhat in a mocking tone, I think, to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. So, Pharaoh, you set the time. You let me know whenever you want me to pray that prayer. Now put yourself in Pharaoh's sandals. You've got frogs in your kitchen, frogs in your bathroom, frogs in your living room, frogs in your bed. You can't step anywhere, sit anywhere, lie down anywhere without having to sweep away frogs. So what would you have said to Moses? If I were Pharaoh and, and, and I would have said, Moses, get down on your knees right this second and pray to have this plague removed. Get these frogs out of here now. What was Pharaoh's response to Moses? Exodus 8.10. Tomorrow. Ortberg says this is the greatest danger. He writes that tomorrow is the single most dangerous word in the English language. That most dangerous word isn't the word no for most of us. It is tomorrow. Not disobedience, but delayed obedience. Tomorrow, we say. Like Pharaoh, we look over our lives and things are less than great. We have all sorts of frogs running around making a mess of things. There is misery. There is pain. It is not pretty. But then we think about submitting to the will of God, to being obedient to the Lord, our maker, to letting go of the control of our lives and submitting to him. And for some inexplicable reason, just like Pharaoh, we say to God, tomorrow. We choose to live another night with the frogs. Dear friends, worship is joyful celebration. And worship is humble submission. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, today, if only you would hear His voice. Let us pray. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, the one who flung the stars into space, the one who separated the water from the dry ground, scooped out the valleys and formed the mountains, the one who called your people Israel into a special covenant relationship, who delivered them and made them the sheep of his pasture, the flock under his care. So you have called us, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture, the flock under your care. Oh God, may today 
we hear your voice and submit in humble obedience as an act of worship to you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.